Hello and welcome to Android Bytes, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick, and each week I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Rahman, diving deep into the world of Android. This week, we're taking a pretty broad look at that world with Google I.O. on the horizon. That's Google's big annual developer conference everybody looks forward to, though this year won't be in person for most people, it seems, unfortunately, though also understandably. And we have a guest here today who has a lot of Android development experience. And Michelle, take it away. Thanks, David. So on today's episode, we have Lawrence, who's better known as LJ Dawson on Reddit. If you use Reddit at all and you've looked into the apps that are available, one of the top hits on Google Play is Sync for Reddit. And this developer is very experienced working on Sync for Reddit, but he's also very experienced at adapting many of Google's design paradigms and new APIs and things very quickly. So it's if you're looking for a model app that follows what's new in Android to a T, Sync is one of the best bets to look at. And that's why I wanted to invite Lawrence onto the show, because he has extensive experience developing for Android. And we wanted to take a broad overview of the experience of building and supporting an application on the Android platform. So thanks for joining us, Lawrence. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. All right. So as I pretty much already did your intro for you, um, I think we'll just yeah, yeah, segue. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> I think we'll just segue straight into uh, the discussion then. So as David mentioned, Google I/O from our perspective is next week, but by the time this episode is released, it's going to be in a few days. Most people are probably looking forward to all the new consumer-focused features that are coming in Android 13. You know, the themed icons and the new material use stuff, and all the other features that are coming with the clipboard. But developers, of course, are looking at I.O. with a bit more of a mixed reaction because consumers, you were always excited about the fun new features you can play around with. But developers are always like, oh, boy, what is Google introducing this time that's going to affect how my app behaves? Or like, what are the new APIs that I have to be aware of? Or like, what are the new best practices of 2022? You know, how's that going to change from 2021? There's just so many things that change every year because Android has a yearly release cycle. It's exciting for consumers and journalists, but it may be a pain in the butt for app developers. But of course, there's always good things to come out of these developer conferences. There's always new tools, new frameworks, tutorials, code labs, so many things that Google produces from its various teams to help developers just build better apps. So there's a mixed bag of things to look forward to and to dread. This is the life of the indie app dev. So I wanted to ask you, just starting off, Lawrence, like when did you get into Android app dev and like what drew you to the platform over iOS? Okay, yeah. So I was there from the very beginning. I remember queuing up outside of a freezing cold phone store in north of England. It's about 2008 uh, to go get my pre-ordered G1, the HTC Dream. And this thing was set to change the world. It was going to be a whole new device, a whole new platform. And I was really, really excited to get it. It didn't quite live up to expectations. Uh, it wasn't the turn I thought it would be. And I ended up leaving Android for a few years after that and going to the dark side, going to iOS. But uh, after that, got back here and got the S2, the Galaxy S2. I've never looked back since then. What really drew me in at the time was the fact that I was studying computer science and we were using Java. And it was a direct fit. I didn't have to relearn something else. I could poke around in the source code, see how things were actually working. And yeah, I was, I was a bit of a Google fanboy. And so it kind of, kind of made sense. Things are definitely a lot simpler back then. So you could certainly do that. Android is a massive beast nowadays with a lot of it written in Kotlin, a lot of it written in now Rust, the more native bits. 
And like, of course, the API service just expanded so massively. There's so many tools and frameworks and everything. It's just like, if you're a new developer just looking to break in to the Android app development scene, I think it probably seems pretty overwhelming for a lot of people. And that's the impression that I got just looking on Android developer communities. They're like, why is Android app dev feel so overwhelming? Like, why are there so many tools? Like, where do I start? Like, where do you start? If I were to ask you, you've been doing this for a long time. And you know, you've evolved with these things. These things have come out. They weren't just like thrown on you. So like you've had time to look at the new tools, libraries, frameworks, et cetera, that Google releases. If you were to give a lecture to newcoming app developers, what would you tell them? So there's sort of two sides to this. The first side is the sort of the technical development part. And that can break down into, if you're just starting Android now, don't bother with Java, go straight into Kotlin. Pay close attention to the way Google are doing things, how, what they're recommending, what architectures they're recommending, and really things like just try to use their libraries as much as possible and be part of the ecosystem. You mentioned that the Android devs subreddit, and that is a really, really great resource. You can often see projects on there that are um, being contributed to sort of, I'm just starting out in Android. How does this look? The community is very involved on there. The other side that I was going to mention was the slightly harder side of Android development, which has been learning how to change as the platform changes like with Google Play. So back in the day, it used to be the uh, the Android store, I think it was called. And things were much, much simpler. Back then. It was almost like the wild west of, of Android development. You could put it up the there. Android market was the name. People will be going nuts if somebody doesn't say it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Android market. Yeah, it was the Wild West back then. You know, it was the time before privacy policies and GDPR. And it was a lot quicker to sort of push it up out there and get it straight to your end user. These days, as in that small developer, you can get bogged down in a lot of the details, just getting it to your users. And things like even review. There never used to be a, a long drawn out review process. You put an app online and it was to your users. Now you can get stuck in review for days, if not weeks at a time. So things have changed a lot over the years there. Yeah, if you're a new app developer, like it's definitely harder to find a footing. The best place to start is just get your feet wet a bit, like start doing stuff instead of focusing on reading tutorial after tutorial after tutorial. And like a lot of these tutorials may be over-engineered with best practices, but the best practices are something you pick up over time. Instead of trying to engineer your app, following everything that's recommended to a T, you know, just start doing stuff. That's always the best way to learn. And I think, that also applies in this situation too. Would you agree? Yeah. And I was going to say, um, try not to stress, you know, there is a lot to learn. You don't have to know it all. Android's very modular. You can really focus in on one day, master that before having to learn it all. But also Android's come on a hell of a long way in terms of resources available to developers. So things which I was very, I was very reluctant to use at the start, things like Firebase. It's a tool now I couldn't develop without. So that has things like Crashlytics, remote configuration, cloud functions. All of these are just absolute perfect tools for Android development. And a new developer should definitely, from day one, integrate Firebase into their project. Absolutely. And one of the other things you should definitely be looking at if you're looking to support anything beyond just a single device on a single OS version are support libraries. Because the big F word, fragmentation, is something that still plagues (laughs) Android. And while it's not something that really journalists like us, we kind of look at the Android distribution chart and chuckle, oh, look at Android fragmentation, it's still a thing. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to us because it doesn't affect us at all. We're just reporting on it as like a statistic. But for developers, 
it is very much a real problem that affects and gives you guys headaches a lot because the distribution directly determines what OS versions you should be supporting, at least like at the minimum level. If there's only like 1% of devices on Gingerbread, obviously you're not going to be supporting Gingerbread anymore unless you really need to for some reason. But if like you see the statistics are moving towards a newer version, you say, okay, I want to support at least 70% of devices, so I'll stick my minimum here. But of course, what you set will determine like how your app's going to behave under certain OS versions and what behaviors it's projected to, what APIs are available. But if you were to try to code your app to specifically react a certain way under every single OS version, you'd probably go crazy because there's so many changes in every OS version. So having like different behaviors for every OS version, doing that natively in your app with your own code and your own logic would quickly get out of hand. Yeah, they they have support libraries that abstract that for you. They say like, I want my fingerprint, I want authentication to show up on across all these OS versions. And the support library is like, okay, yes. I got you. You don't have to worry about any of that. We'll take care of it. And those support libraries, the Android X support libraries, they've been around for a long time. And they also basically help take care of not just OS version compatibility, but they also simplify some of the things. Some of the more complicated APIs in Android, like Camera 2, which is used to interface with camera hardware on a device, it's really complicated and hard to use. And Google recognized that, which is why they made a support library called Camera X, which simplifies that and makes it easier for developers to actually work with cameras on Android. So, Lawrence, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on Jetpack and Android X libraries and, like, which of them do you use in your app? What do you think are the most useful? Just to touch on your previous point that you were saying about fragmentation in Android, I've always found, personally, it's a point which is sort of blown out of proportion. Sync always tries to use as many of the new features as Android as possible, but the support libraries are so good that it's never really been that much of a headache for me. So you gave the example of biometrics. To get biometrics working in the app, so let's say you want to secure the app for fingerprint starting, it's a really, really simple API. You can add it in and have support within five to 10 minutes. And that's just something that drops in and it's really, really easy for the developer. In terms of what libraries I use in sync, I had a quick look ahead of before this. I was actually surprised at how many of the libraries I'm using are, are Google at this point. So over the years, I've had so many other libraries, but yeah, it's about 90% Google libraries these days. And the top ones to sort of point out is things like the Material 3 library, which brings the look and feel and Material Design 3 to apps. And it pretty rigidly follows Google's specifications and allows you to really develop something much quicker than doing it by yourself. You'd be an absolute madman to try to replicate any of this yourself. And dropping that in, it's been very, very simple to sync to move from Material 1 to Material 3 using this. The libraries that you use in an app will obviously depend on your specific use cases. And there's not always going to be a library for what you need. So it's always good to just look through Google's developer documentation to see what's available. And if not, maybe you'll seek out some third-party library. But of course, there are some issues with doing so, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I wanted to first talk to you about architecting an app. Because this is actually something that's like very, very, very dev-focused and something that users will never, ever consider. Because like we talked about things like Project Treble on this podcast before, where you want to separate certain bits from each other so that it's easier to modularize the app, to modularize the system. Well, the same idea kind of applies to developing an app, right? You want apps to be modular so that you can easily update them and start testing things. So if you have a whole bunch of mixed logic together, then it becomes harder to do that. And that's why it's recommended you separate things like your GUI, your user interface elements from like the backend business logic. There's a lot of different strategies for architecting your app. And I wanted to ask you over the years of developing for Android, 
what have you learned about app architecture? Like, what are your thoughts on the best solution? Let's sort of set the scene on this one. I've been working on Sync for the best part of 10 years. So when I first started, there was no architecture. It was just big activities, God classes full of all the logic mixed in. Horrendous to actually keep working on that sort of project. The first big redesign of Sync, I moved to MVC. It's a model view controller. And then sort of just grew it out from there. And as you point out, it's very important to have clear separation between your business logic and your behind the scenes logic and your actual your views. And testing has been paramount to working on a project of this size for this long for Sync. If I didn't have my test suite, the app would fall apart at this point. So it's been very important for Sync to stick to some actually good architecture principles over the years. One thing to note, especially with Sync, is that the UI changes a lot. So Having a robust, testable backend, having databases, having the controllers, everything where I can guarantee it's just going to work fine has been something I've had to strongly rely on for the one developing Sync. I don't know if any of you listening, if you haven't used Sync for Reddit before, I recommend you take a look at it. The sheer number of features that are available in the app, the sheer number of things you can enable that completely change the look and feel of the functionality of the app, the way threads are displayed, the way comments are opened. I can't imagine that being possible if it was architected the way you described in the beginning. Like that requires a lot of modularization to make that possible without completely falling apart. It's not something the user can really see, but if you think about it, it's crazy impressive. You need something to be really modular. I mean, there are some exceptions. If you look at the Telegram code base, um, <laughs> if you look, if you try to open the main activity for the Telegram, Assuming your browser doesn't crash from out of memory, you'll see that it is possible to design something that's not at all modular, but still very, very um, highly customizable to the end user. So, of course, like it's not a guarantee that something that should be modular is actually modular, but it's definitely good practice to make sure that you're architecting your app correctly before you develop. But then if not refactoring your app and actually making sure it's more extensible for the future. And of course, development, generally, you're never doing everything from scratch. You're always building upon some kind of foundation, something else someone else did a while ago. I don't know if you've seen that XKCD image where there's like a foundation of like Jenga blocks. And then at the bottom, there's like some open source library, some dude in Nebraska made. And it's like the internet will fall apart if anything were to happen to that. That's pretty true, but that's how development is. You always have dependencies, which themselves use dependencies, which themselves have dependencies. It's just back and forth and back and forth because... Nobody wants to code every single thing, every single piece of logic from scratch. So you have many different libraries you can depend on, you can use in your apps. Lawrence mentioned his app uses like 90% Google-made libraries. If you're building something that doesn't use Google's ad libraries, for example, you might use a third-party library. Or if you have some very specific need that isn't provided by Google, you might use some other external library. I mean, a lot of the big tech companies like Square, I think they make, uh, I think, OKHTTP or something like that. A lot of big tech companies, they offer their own libraries. Facebook has a bunch of them, et cetera. But the problem is a lot of libraries are being integrated into apps without actually being audited. It's not a good practice, but you integrate a library because, oh, I see this is how it behaves. I can communicate this library in this way and get this data back. But a lot of people aren't actually checking what's going on in those libraries. And that's a big problem that Google's trying to solve because in many cases, third-party libraries that are being shipped with an app are accessing data improperly, or they're doing things that even the developer is not aware of, and then the developer's on the hook because it's part of their app and it's collecting data. 
this has resulted in several high-profile cases of apps being removed. I think Cam Scanner, an app that I used to love, actually suffered this because they integrated a third-party library, and that third-party library was caught collecting data. And then Google is like, okay, you guys are improperly collecting data, so we banned you from the App Store. And then they removed that, they audited it, and then they got back on. Of course, like checking the source code of every library you integrate is probably going to take forever. So it's not something everyone's going to do, but you want to make sure you're not using libraries unnecessarily. You're not using excessive amount of libraries. You're not entering dependency or library hell. You want to make sure that whatever libraries you integrate, you don't want to be on the hook for what they're doing. You want to make sure they're doing everything safe and securely. So I wanted to ask you, Lawrence, what are your thoughts on this issue of library dependency management and the security and privacy implications of using third-party libraries? With this, I tried to stick with with the main libraries in Android, like I said previously, 90% of the libraries used in sync are Google made. So I can be pretty sure that these are going to behave correctly. You touched on things like data collection from other apps. Sync has two methods of monetization. The first is to sell a pro version, which is without ads. And the second one is with ads. Over like the last eight years, I've had a lot of experience dealing with ad companies and integrating their libraries. And yeah, some of these have been ad behaved. One of the worst defenders I can remember was that adverts would randomly click themselves and take themselves to Google Play. And that is a clear violation of terms. So if this goes up to a reviewer and a reviewer sees this, it could be suspension, it could be a ban. So how do you even audit that? Something that's unrepeatable on your device and something that you have to put in to ship. So you have to be very selective with what libraries you integrate and which ad companies you partner with. Yeah, and fortunately, Google is actually doing some pretty innovative stuff in Android 13, or at least not guaranteed to ship in Android 13, but they started work on it to solve this issue of third-party libraries having too much access. So in Android 13, they're introducing something called the SDK runtime. The way things are right now, whenever an SDK is integrated into an app, any processes that it spawns are under the same sandbox as the parent app. So any permissions that, say, Sync has, the third-party SDK that is shipped with Sync would have access to the same permissions. It'd be able to collect the same data and it'd have access to the same APIs and the same data that's collected by Sync. So if you don't know what that third-party SDK is doing, that's pretty scary because it could be collecting a lot of information without the user or even the developer's consent or knowledge. So the SDK runtime splits that up. And so like certain SDKs on an allow list would be running in their own sandbox process that are separate from the main process. It's a very interesting take. I'm not sure how successful it'll be because it requires a lot of support from the SDK libraries developers themselves. But it's something to be aware of because Google is actually trying to solve this on a platform level that would have major implications in the future if it actually goes through. But I don't think it's something any app developer really has to worry about right now because it's still in the very, very early stages. Something that app developers do have to worry about, though, is developing a good UI. Because if you don't have a good UI in your app, especially if it's an app you want users to stay in for any considerable amount of time, they're just going to log off your app or install something else. And I think having a good UI is probably the top reason Sync is so beloved. Just saying, like, I'm a recent Sync convert, and I love the user interface. It's so satisfying to use and actually swipe around on Reddit. But of course, like, the magic of developing a UI, you know, it's programming. Like, you're designing layouts using XML or Google's near Jetpack Compose toolkit. And it's not something that users ever really consider, but I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on UI development using XML versus Compose? Like, have you looked at Compose yet? And what do you think about it, its use for developing UI? 
I'll get some stick for saying this, but Sync still uses Java primarily and uses XML for views. And then there's a lot of custom views and stuff built on top of this. You touched on earlier that there's a lot of options in Sync, a lot of customization. So for me to duplicate that logic over to Compose, I think would be a little restrictive at the moment. It'd be too much work just to get a one-for-one mapping over. That's not to say I wouldn't use Compose. I think new projects going forward, it would definitely be a great tool to have, but it's something that's not really worth retrofitting into an existing project. I noticed the other day that Google blog wrote a post saying that Google Plate had been rewritten using Compose and they were getting actually faster performance, better development time and whatnot. So that's encouraging and something uh, once this development cycle has gone through, I would like to take a further look at. Would you recommend someone starting out in development use XML or Compose? Uh, Google are pushing Compose pretty hard at the moment. So I think if you're starting development, Compose might be Compose might be the way to go. <laughs> Sorry, we set my Google up. I'll just unplug it. <laughs> That's a common common theme on this show. You're not the first one it's happened to. I was going to say, this has never happened before. Okay, Yeah, where were we? So speaking of Google, you mentioned that your app uses the Material 3 design library. And for those of you who don't know, Material 3 is the developer-facing name for Material U, which is the third iteration of the Material Design language that was introduced last year. A common complaint I've seen from users is that Google comes out with a new design language and recommendations and guidelines, but hardly any applications actually follow them to a T. And it's not because developers are lazy. It's because a lot of companies and apps, they have their own design language and they don't just want to look the same as Google's apps. Google's apps are a recommendation, a guideline on how to adapt your application's design, but they're not a Bible for you to follow. Certain apps like Sync, does follow Material pretty heavily. And it's because you can afford to do that because it's your own app. You're not building it for a company. It's whatever you choose to do. So you chose to use Material pretty heavily. So I want to ask, what are your thoughts on Material design? Like, how has it evolved over the years? What do you think about it from its first iteration to Material Design 2 to Material Design 3? Back when it first started to sink, it was sort of the, the gingerbread era days. Back then, there wasn't even a standard in place for the top toolbar in app. You have to rely on a third-party app, such as one Jake Walton did, to add a toolbar to an app. So things were very disjointed in terms of design, and it was hard to come up with a cohesive design language for what you use in your app. Years later, along came material design, and that offered a lot of positive design sort of structure and points for your app. And getting Sync to use that initially was quite tough. I wanted to make the app as googly as possible. So if a user opened up the app, it would fill at home on the Google device, which at the time I think was a, a Nexus something or other. Over the years, it's changed a bit. So Material 2 wasn't quite actually an official release, if I'm correct on that one. It was kind of like an in-betweeny one. So we saw that in things like Google News, which had the design that Sync sort of loosely based its last design revision of. And Material 3, Material U, is its latest incarnation. And it's a thing I personally like a lot. So I spent a lot of time on the Android subreddit, um, so I'm sure you do. And it's quite a divisive topic. So there are some users that are really, really against Material U. They don't like the fact that all their apps look the same, or the coloring is too washed out, or that they don't like the fact that elements are too big, that things have big borders on their apps or big margins. 
But this is all something you get to play with. There is no golden rule for it all. Implementing it in sync has been a bit of a challenge. So I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of options in sync and getting material three to work just right with the level of customization has been tricky. So one point there I wanted to touch on was when you generate a palette in Material Design 3 and Material U, so you give it a color and you get a palette out of this and then you use that for your app. You typically do that with the style file in Android. Doing this dynamically was a challenge. And Google until recently didn't even let you know how to generate a palette programmatically. Quite recently, they've open sourced this part. It's on GitHub, I can provide the link, but it allows you to generate a palette at runtime. Now, this was a bit of a game changer because all of a sudden you can change the colors at runtime. You can see this palette with a base color and base hex value, and you can start to generate your own color palette and change on top of that. And for me, this was a, this was a bit of a game changer. This this was the point where I thought, hey, this is actually a shippable thing. I'm not making something which is trying to look like a Google app. I can use the same code again, and I can actually make something that feels like a Google app again. Very positive with Material 3, but there are pushbacks from my users. So things like the bottom navigation switched out recently from using Material 1 or Material 2 style bottom navigation, which was... X size and the newer version is about 20 or 30% bigger. And some users just are not happy with that. They really don't like the way that Google's going with this. Now, I've always had the opinion that I'm a developer and I will follow whatever Google do. They're the ones with a team of designers and a lot of money to throw at this to get it right. So I'm going to blindly follow them. But I can see how some companies might really not want to go that way. If you're a company which is very design focused or Let's say your brand is more important than following Google specification. It might be a lot harder to adapt your app to use the material new library or material three design. Yeah, it really comes down to your ability to design or your willingness to design. Why reinvent the wheel when Google has a highly paid, highly talented team of designers and engineers who come up with this design? If you don't feel the need to, or you don't feel like you have the talent to design something that looks beautiful. Why not just ship Google's Material Design 3 and use that as a base? There's nothing, no arm of that. Google certainly put a lot of effort into it, so why not use it? Of course, the calculus changes when you have to consider your brand's own design elements. Those things are, it, it might be simple to drop in. Some of the other things that Google is asking developers to do, I wanted to ask you about the recent push to optimize Android for large screen devices like tablets, Chromebooks, and foldables. Google's been actually pushing this for a long time, telling developers to make your app agnostic of different screen sizes. But now with Android 12L and Android 13, they're really, really pushing that hard. Like they want developers to make their apps foldable aware and to make them actually scale properly on tablets. You recently pushed an update sync that makes it optimized on large screen devices. Like I have it running on my Surface Pro X through Windows subsystem for Android. Like I'm running a sync for Reddit on my ARM Windows laptop and it's using the tablet version. It actually looks really nice. You did an amazing job on that. And you also pushed an update that made it foldable aware. So if you have a Z Fold 3, sync actually adapts properly when it's folded and unfolded, has the different layouts for each state. I wanted to ask because there aren't many apps that support foldables in particular. Like, has it been difficult to adapt sync for foldables and tablets also? Can you share some of the challenges and some of the things that you did that helped you to make that transition? I was pleasantly surprised at how easy it was to get things up and running quickly for tablet and foldable. So the way that Seek is architected, like structured, 
I rely on fragments quite heavily. So just dropping these into different layouts and showing them to the user in different ways, very straightforward. I would say that I had the full tablet version working within a day or a day and a half from the phone version. So it was really quick, really quick to iterate. And the tools for this are outstanding. So the emulator, things like this, I'm just working perfect now. The foldable one, slightly different challenge, and it's quite hard to visualize unless you get your hands on a device, how it feels. So you want to sort of understand that the different states of how it opens and how you expect the app to move across the screens. This one's a slightly harder problem, but it's more conceptual that the actual implementation is very straightforward. You check the state, am I open? Am I folded? Am I a small screen? Am I a large screen? It's just a few switches to go through. You need to be aware of how the device can be used. And that's something a little bit tougher to get your head around. I think that any developer would agree at this point that foldable still present a big challenge in terms of identifying extra utility to actually extract out of that form factor. There are benefits for sure in terms of screen real estate, but in terms of the unique benefits of having either physically multiple canvases or canvases that essentially split, it still seems kind of up in the air how much the user and how much a developer can do to add to the experience just because a device has that capability. So it's still, I think, so early, it's hard to say what even would be a good tool to to solve problems like these. To solve that problem with like the conceptual bit, did you actually end up going out and buying a foldable or do you still stick with the emulator? I went to a Samsung store in London and yeah, I physically went and played with it for a while just to get my head around it. Literally get my hands dirty and figure out how to use this. Unfortunately, it was a store at King's Cross and I just really wanted to try developing on it. I was like, please, I've got my laptop. I want to use this. And they were like, no, sorry. <laughs> I was like, can I buy one at least? No, we, we don't sell things here. It's just a showroom. This is bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. <laughs> so I ended up ordering a few and developing over a few days before Samsung saw the progress and reached out to me as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's nice to see that kind of proactive assistance from companies. Of course, like not many developers are lucky to have that reach out because I'd say probably the hardest part of actually, let's say, shipping an app is not just developing it, but what happens after that. 90% of the difficulty in actually getting people to install the app is getting them to know your app exists, I'd say. Like, sure, you can build a great app, but if you have no marketing, you have no word of mouth, you might have like 10 installs on the Google Play Store because there's just millions of other apps to compete with and thousands of more well-funded entities that are spending ad dollars to promote their app. You released Sync a good while ago, right? I think back then it was called Reddit Sync. I don't know exactly when you released it, what the year was, but like when you first released it, how did you spread the word? How did you get people to know about it? Initially, it was a little hello post on our Android. I had this idea for an app. Initially, it was to download pictures so I could view them on the way to work. That's back before the underground had Wi-Fi. So I wanted to catch some, I think it was Rage Comics. How embarrassing. I wanted to catch something like that on the reader on the way to work. And the response was great. So I had a lot of users engage with me very early on. And then I had the idea of creating a subreddit for the actual app. And that meant that users could join. And I had this great sort of development cycle where they would submit features and then I would work on it and the app would keep growing that way. So I had a really good reinforcement, positive reinforcement there to develop the app. But that also meant that the app grew by word of mouth. So I'd never spent any money on advertising the app. 
Uh, I've had various tokens for free over the years from people like Facebook saying, we'll give you a thousand dollars in marketing credit, whatever. I've never seen any use from any of that. It's always been from directly listening to my users. And things being very fortunate in having a, a very loyal user base and a very vocal user base that do my marketing for me. <laughs> yeah. Something to take away is that I know many developers are averse to social media. They don't like the idea of like Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, but it really is the best marketing tool, especially if you're not willing to spend money on marketing. Like if you have a social media account that's active, you can certainly get the word out about products you're working on or things you're interested in. So yeah, that's the reason why all of us here are active in social media. Screaming into the void can accomplish something, kids. <laughs> yeah, and of course, Google themselves, they provide a lot of things being like various opportunities for you to basically piggyback off of. So like if you do certain things, Google will like you very much and they're more likely to promote your app for you. Over the years, they've announced many of those things. So if you're looking for a way to get free publicity for your app, definitely keep an eye on what Google's announcing and be like, you know, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm using your new library, your new tool. Give me a shout out. Like as Lawrence mentioned, right, he, he was showing off foldable support on his application and then Samsung reached out to him because of course they did. They want people to love their foldable products. So if you're showing off a great looking app on your foldable product, they're going to love you for it. But of course, like these big app stores aren't the only places that are pining for new apps. There are also other alternative app stores. There's the Huawei run app gallery and the Amazon run app store. And there's many marketing opportunities for there. Of course, those app stores are significantly smaller in volume in terms of how many apps are available. But the Amazon App Store in particular is interesting to us because Microsoft is putting a big budget marketing campaign behind it because they're promoting it as the app store for Android compatible Windows 11 PCs. So I wanted to ask you, Lawrence, like, what do you think of these alternate app stores? Like, do you think ones like App Gallery and the Amazon App Store are actually now viable, even though they've been around for years? Or do you think just too many developers are tied to Google Play's ecosystem for them to actually take off? It can be difficult to support the multiple app stores, especially if you're tied into things heavily like Google Play services. So for small developers, it can be a real headache just trying to make it work across two platforms. And then the question really is, are there enough users on these other ones? I've played with a few over the years. You mentioned then that Amazon are having a big push behind from Microsoft. And I'm getting a lot of word back from my users that, hey, yeah, now WSA is out, we can actually run a sync natively on Windows. This is fantastic. And it's on my checklist of things to do is definitely to release to Amazon at this point. Some of the smaller ones like Huawei, I'm not so sure. I've had a little play with that. And uh, the actual system compared to Google's method of publishing an app, it all felt very 90s. GeoCities, not GeoCities, like very 90s web design and stuff. It just, it wasn't a pleasure to use. and I didn't have any confidence in the product at that point. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, most of the user base is going to be in China where um, Reddit, as we know, is enormously popular. The, the opposite of that, um, in case my sarcasm wasn't obvious. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not surprised by that. I want to touch upon the Google Play services aspect a bit more because it's something we've talked about a lot on this show. It's not at all available on AOSP. It's a purely GMS bundle application. When you're shipping these applications on Huawei App Gallery or Amazon App Store, 
you're generally assuming that the device that is installing them doesn't have access to Google Play services. So they're going to lack access to presumably or possibly many of the APIs that your app actually depends on for things like push notifications or maybe backup services. I wanted to ask you, if you were to push sync onto Amazon App Store, for example, how would you deal with that lack of GMS on those devices? Yeah, uh, this is a good question, actually. This is something I've been racking my brain over the last few weeks trying to figure this one out. So far, the best thing I've come with is just making a different flavor of the app in Gradle, making like an external version, has some checks that says, hey, it looks like Google Play services isn't available on this device. Uh, we're going to have to either limit access to some of these features or do them in a different way. Now, some of these features can be dropped quite easily. A good example of integration with Play services is I just shipped the um, Firebase translation into the app. So that means that you can click on a comment and say, I'd like to translate this from French to English. It will download the translation model, do the translation locally, and then show it to the user. Fantastic. It's free to the developer. It's free for the user. Everyone's happy. But crucially, you need access to Google Play to do this. So that's a feature where really you very much need Google Play. But it's also a feature you can live without. You know, you can ship an app without translation built into it. So it's easy to degrade that feature. Other ones, you know, like push notifications, it's going to get a lot trickier. And you might end up having to duplicate your logic. You have to put Firebase cloud messaging in there. Then you have to do someone else's version of messaging. So that you can get a bit messy on that front. Is there one simple way to do all this? I don't think so. I think you've really got to take it on a case-by-case basis and work out what is the thing you're wanting to ship to the user? Can it be done without Google Play services? Is it going to impact the app that much? Some things it definitely is. I certainly have a kind of semi-cynical look at whenever Google announces a lot of these cool new features, like you mentioned, that Firebase translation. That's really cool that Google provides that for free to users and developers. But then I look at that from a perspective, oh, that's another way that developers are locked into Google Play services. A lot of these features, there's a lot of services and things they offer you for free. But the more and more of it you use, the more and more you're tied in to Google Play. And then the harder it is to move away and the more and more you integrate, it becomes harder to find alternatives to them because there may not be one or it would require a lot of work to actually support alternatives. So. You can't really say this is the reason why Google introduced this, because of course there is a tangible benefit to users and developers, but because of this, it's the reason why many developers only support shipping apps through Google Play versus other platforms. And recently Google Play actually did something that I think is quite controversial with independent app developers. I don't know how you feel. I want to gauge your opinion on this. We've known for years that Google Play is at a shifting target API requirement level. So for those of you who don't know, like, Google Play requires developers to, if they're going to ship a new app or an update to an existing app, it has to target a recent API level. And that's been a requirement since I think 2018. Later this year, by November 1st, all apps on Google Play will have to target Android 12 or newer. And that's not changing. That's always been there. But what's changing now is that apps that haven't been updated to target the previous release minus one, so that either of the two previous releases they'll be hidden from users. And that's a huge change because a lot of apps haven't been updated in maybe like three years. They're just suddenly going to disappear from a majority of users on the Google Play Store. Obviously, it's going to surface a lot of higher quality apps because those apps that are being shown to them are actively updated and maintained by developers. But it's also going to result in 
a lot of apps that are perfectly fine, not needing updates, just disappearing. So I wanted to ask you, like, what are your thoughts on these changes? Do you think this is actually something good for the ecosystem? Or do you think this actually will discourage in the app developers from working on Android? So as an end user, I like this. This is a great thing. I want apps that are up to date. I want apps that privacy focus. They don't have complete access to all of my files, for example. So a lot of these changes have really good reasoning behind them. As a developer, it can be a massive pain. Things like changing the way that Sync was dealing with file system. So it's all scoped access using storage framework. It wasn't fun dealing with. I didn't enjoy doing that. Something worked fine, and then I had to rewrite it all. Uh, yeah, I'm torn on this one. It's a good thing overall, but it's a lot of unnecessary work. And for some apps, like if it was written five years ago, it did one thing very well. Does it really ever need it to be updating? And if it can keep functioning fine, why can't that be shown forever? But then if it's a security risk, then, you know, if the developer's not doing an update for five years, what's gone on there? But overall, I think it's a positive thing. I'd have to agree. And we all know that there will continue to be many online repositories for software that's either no longer updated and that Android already has a strong community, you know, different things like that with websites like APK Mirror <laughs> and uh, many, many others. I also kind of have a semi-cynical view of this because with the way things have been going with the hiding of old apps that may not necessarily need to be updated, it feels like Google is pushing developers to not develop apps as like a complete package that's shipped. It's one and done. By doing this, they're pushing developers to develop apps as a service. They want developers to continuously update apps. And of course, if you're updating apps continuously, that requires time, resources, and effort. So that would encourage developers to possibly monetize their apps more. And of course, who gets a big cut of that monetization? Google. There's a good argument to be made that it's helpful overall for users. It's improving security, improving quality of apps. But of course, there's always some secret benefit to Google that you don't immediately see, but it's like, oh yeah, I can see this definitely helps them in ways that they're not really telling you up front. Yeah, I mean, their business is the internet and therefore a lot of things they touch could have a positive impact on one portion of that business, though. Admittedly here, the motivation is it's pretty easy to draw a line. Not to say that, you know, that was a reason they did it, but it certainly makes it easier to say, yeah, we're just going to dump all the old apps now. Like, you know, there's also an upshot for us. So I'm sure it wasn't a hard decision for them to make in the end. All right. So we're coming up on time here. But before we close off, Google I.O. is right around the corner. So I wanted to ask you, have you taken a look at the sessions that are going to be shown? Are you going to be watching the keynote? Are there any particular sessions you're particularly interested in? Yeah, I, I took a look ahead at this, especially there's one for designing apps for large screens. You said earlier they're pushing tablet at the moment. So it'd be interesting to hear from Google how they intend to support this and what their design strategy is to take. That's definitely my top one. There's also rumblings of Pixel Watch stuff. So if that happens, I'll be very surprised. I've always wanted to make an Android Wear app. If they finally release a Pixel Watch, I might finally do it. <laughs> I wonder what kind of madman will be browsing Reddit on their watch. <laughs> so speaking of Google I.O., we will be recording episodes of Android Bytes following each day of the Google I.O. conference. So look forward to that next week or I guess later this week because, you know, time is relative. 
So thank you again, Lawrence, for joining us on today's show. And if people want to follow you and your work, where can they find you and where can they like find your work? Best place is Reddit. So if you come over to the subreddit, it's r slash reddit sync. And I'm on there as LJ Dawson. Okay. And thank you for joining us on today's show. It's great hearing you from like A to Z, the basics of how to architect an app, what you think are the best practices, best libraries, and like it's not a topic that we really talk about unless you go on like Android developer communities and you really start looking into this stuff. And it's also not something that we focus on very often because we're more on the platform and ecosystem side of things. So it's great to have someone to talk about these development topics in particular. It is also actually relevant to our business here at Esper because a lot of times we do have customers or prospects come to us in our business to encounter like, hey, actually... You know, this app that your vendor told you doesn't have any Google or GMS dependencies. Well, it definitely does, because as soon as you run them on AOSP, it either doesn't work or something is very broken in that application. Like notifications don't work because they're using Firebase to serve them. So it's very basic stuff, but it comes up a lot. So if you're in this space and you're figuring out how to develop an app on a device that either doesn't have GMS or in a situation where some of your devices at least won't have GMS, come talk to us at Esper, because it probably means you're doing something we're interested in, or could be interested in, if it's something we haven't done before. We work on dedicated Android devices, which is really to say devices that do one thing all day, every day. They could be point-of-sale systems at a restaurant. They could be kiosks in a retail scenario, or in something like public transit. We could be in logistics. We're powering forklift control tablets. We're inside of a first responder walkie-talkie for firefighters and police officers. So come talk to us at Esper. We're at esper.io. All right. Thanks for the outro, David. And thank you again, Lawrence, for joining us. It was great having you on. Hopefully, if we have something to talk to you about in the future, maybe post-io, we'll reach out to you again. Be great to have you back on the show. Cheers. Thanks for having me.